today I will be addressing suffering and salvation because Paul shows us in this chapter that salvation and suffering are central to the Father's, the Son, and the Spirit's plan for His people. We will then look at a simple application of a biblical view of suffering. But before I get into the passage today, I'll first outline some misconceptions of suffering before addressing our passage with you. Firstly, the relation between suffering and punishment. It is absolutely not okay to tell people who are suffering that they're suffering because of their sin or because their family has sinned. The main reason for this is because we can't, we don't, we don't know that. We're just assuming. We're judging. Um, but th- it's also very harmful because there's nothing worse for someone who has a disability or a mental illness or a serious sickness that they have it because they are receiving punishment. But not only is it a bit unhelpful and mean, Scripture teaches explicitly that people experience suffering and hardship not just because of sin, but because of various other reasons, as made clear in the story of Job, where his friends told Job he was suffering because of his sin, which God refuted and reprimanded, or the life of Christ. But moreover, Jesus himself says in John 9 verse 3, that the blind man, neither him nor his parents sinned, but his blindness occurred so that the works of God might be displayed in him. His inability to see was prevalent, not because he was receiving punishment, but to reveal Jesus' power and authority to holistically heal people. This basically means to, to heal the entirety of someone's well-being, which is a very interesting topic for another time. Um, moreover, it is inevitable as Christians that we will face suffering, hardship, and challenges just as Christ did. This very passage attests to this point, verse 17. If children, then heirs. If indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. So the main point here is just to withhold our judgment to those who are experiencing these challenging things. We must be loving, we must be empathetic, and we must be kind. However, the flip side of this is that it's also not okay to tell people that God is such a loving and gracious God that we would not receive punishment or discipline for people's sin. Many people may ask, am I experiencing this particular thing because of my sin? I would contend that we should res- a more appropriate response would be, I don't know, or it is unlikely. The reason I say this is because the Bible is very clear about discipline, which is essentially a punishment that is meant to produce good. Let's take a look at Hebrews 12, 5 verse 8. Where's my clicker? I can't believe I just see. Okay. (laughs) Have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? My son, do not scorn the Lord's discipline. Or give up when he corrects you. For the Lord's discipline, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son 
that he accepts. Endure your suffering as discipline. I repeat, endure your suffering as discipline. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there that does not receive discipline? But if you do not experience discipline, something all sons have shared in, then you are illegitimate and are not sons. End quote. So Paul goes as far as to say, if you are not receiving suffering or hardship for discipline, you are not a child of God. Rationally, we can only assume that there will be times in our lives where we experience hardship, suffering, because God is disciplining you lovingly. Moreover, even our beloved Apostle Paul, one of the greatest Christians in history, attests to be given a thorn in his side for the purpose of improving his character, to be precise, to humble him. 2 Corinthians 12, 7-10. Oh, I won't read the whole thing. Um, Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited or arrogant, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me, Three times I pleaded with the Lord, take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. The the next misconception comes from a misunderstanding of what joy is. Some Christians would argue that because we are Christian, we should constantly be happy or should experience or should not experience difficult periods, and so on. But to be a joyful Christian does not mean to always be happy. We can be very joyful people, but experience times of sadness and grief. Moreover, happiness is something that fluctuates. It goes up and down. Throughout a day, we will be happy at times, sad at times, stressed at times, disappointed at times, Um, we'll feel different emotions throughout, throughout a day. But joy doesn't fluctuate. So it seems reasonable to assert that if we experience suffering or hardship, it is completely okay to be sad. However, what is very important is how we deal with our sadness or grief. When Jesus heard the news of John's beheading, his response was to seek solitude. We aren't given specifics in this situation, but it is obvious that Jesus had a process of dealing with this particular situation. Some would attest grieving. Moreover, many counselors advise that when we experience grief, we should make it a priority that we set aside times to participate in grieving practices. If we want to move on, we cannot merely ignore our emotions. Instead, we need to deal with them through the process of grieving, which includes practices, which could include practices such as lamenting, crying, acknowledgement, praying, addressing memories, and more. <coughs> Another misconception is that all, it's always God's will for you to prosper physically, mentally, emotionally, psychologically, and financially. We will address this misconception throughout the sermon. <coughs> Lastly, the idea that it is always okay to say something with it if it is true. 
I think many of us in our lives have experienced suffering and hardship or persecution or anything along the lines of that. And there are many true things that could be said during that time, but I think most of us would acknowledge that it's not always appropriate to say things just because it's true. I'll give an example. If someone in our family dies, it is more than reasonable to assert, and it's, it's inappropriate to say at least they lived a good life, or everyone has to die at some point, or at least you saw it coming, it wasn't sudden. These things can be true in the situation, but I really hope that we can acknowledge that it's not always the best time to say these things. I would contend that during these times, the best thing to say is nothing. We need to be there for each other. We need to support each other. We need to come alongside each other. So let's be present with those in suffering. Thank you for bearing with me through the misconceptions. If you would like to, please turn now to the passage for the day, which is Romans 8, 16 to 30. Um, I'm going to be skipping through a little bit of it because it's a long passage. The Spirit himself bears witness to our spirit that we are indeed God's children. And if children, then heirs, if indeed we suffer with him, so we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that our present sufferings cannot even be compared to the coming glory that will be revealed to us. Verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know how we should pray, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes on behalf of the saints according to God's will. And we know that all things work together for good for those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. Because those he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that his Son would be firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. A people and a plan. Salvation is a clear theme in the book of Romans. And I'm confident that most of us would contend that it discusses quite extensively Jesus' saving work. However, I believe that it is evident that Paul does not merely attribute salvation to Christ, but instead has a more triune way of understanding salvation. Triune just refers to the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit. So I contend that Paul has a more triune way of understanding salvation essentially believes that the Father, the Son, and the Spirit were a, a part of the planning, enacting, and completing of God's plan. And Romans 8 provides a helpful paradigm or model of salvation that explains how God's church are being saved and suffering's direct relation to that. At this point, I just wanted to clarify quickly that 
whatever your views on the controversial topics, such as free will, persevering of the saints, um, you know, and all the other salvific-related views that can get quite heated in church. All of those views can be fit into what is about, be, about to be said. So if we can not focus too much on that, that would be much appreciated so that we can all get to the point of what Paul is saying here. So let's begin in Romans eight twenty-nine to 30. Here we are informed that God foreknew us, predestined us, called us, justified and glorified us. But what does this mean? Well, to understand what it means to be foreknown, it is helpful to look at how the word is looked in the Bible. I'll just look at a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 8 verse 3 tells us that if someone loves God, he is known by God. So the people that love him were foreknown by him. Furthermore, in Amos 3 verse 2, speaking to the Israelites, you only have I known of all the families of earth. Obviously, God knows the surrounding nations, right? So this knowing can't merely be a know of. He must mean that he chose to know them. It is more relational. These and many more scriptures explain that known is an intimate relational word. So to be foreknown means to be intimately loved before the foundations of the world. Those he predestined, he called. We'll come back to predestined in just a moment. But those he called. 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 says, He has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. So those who are called have faith, and the reason being because God has a plan for them. Moreover, Romans 4 verse 17 says, that God who gives life to the dead, God gives life to the dead and calls into being things that were not. This is very similar to Ephesians chapter 2 that teaches that we were dead and God made us alive. We were called into belief. Thus the called are the believers, those who are given faith. Next, those who justified. As you would have heard, to be justified is to have your sins paid for. But not only your sins paid for, but to have Jesus' righteousness attributed to you. So not just cleansed of sin, but righteousness imputed. Jesus takes our sin and we take his righteousness. This is essentially what we are taught in most Western churches. And technically, it is true, but unfortunately, it is a little bit shallow. We fail to understand the enacting of salvation, justification, as something that is God's. Instead, we view it as just Jesus's. If we want to understand God's plan, how he enacts it and its implications, then church, we must dig a little bit deeper. We must learn to think about everything that God does as the three persons of the Trinity working together. So let's try understand justification as the enacting of the Father's, the Son's, and the Spirit's plan, which is what Paul's emphasizing here. 
The Father enacts this plan by sending the Son. And the Son is everything it means to be human, but also fully God. This is something we Christians, this isn't something we as Christians just say because it's what the Bible says or because we need to explain how Jesus can be God. Because that is true, but the implications for salvation are also critical. To put it this way, why did Jesus even need to be a man? Why couldn't our Savior be something else? Why couldn't it be an animal, you know? Why did Jesus have to come as fully God and fully man? It is imperative that God is fully man because God became man so that man can become like God. As 1 Peter 2 verse 4 says, to share in his divine nature, or Colossians 2 19, for in Christ lives all the fullness of God in human body, so you are also complete through your union with Christ. So put it simply, to put it simply, God's plan is to make us like him, new creatures, divinized creatures, or as C.S. Lewis terms it, little Christs. But this amazing plan to make us like little Christs is only possible because Christ represented us in his divinity and humanity. So for us, this means that we are united to Christ's natures. It's what it means to be in Christ, united to Christ. But again, we have to ask, who is Christ? He is the divine human. So we are united to his divinity and humanity. And consequently, we become little Christs. But like I said, we cannot fully grasp God's plan and purpose without viewing justification as triune, as Father, Son, and Spirit. So let us now shift the focus to the Holy Spirit and the Father. The Holy Spirit empowered Jesus' perfect obedience from the moment of conception, which is what we see in the virgin birthright, conceived of spirit, not from human seed. So Jesus was able to represent us by the Spirit who empowered Jesus to do the Father's will. A really significant image of salvation comes at Jesus' baptism. Here we see the Father's election, the Father's call. This is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. We see the Son's burial and raised, His death and resurrection in the lowering and the raising of the water. But we also see the Spirit's indwelling this the holy spirit falls upon jesus and the implication for our salvation is really immense because of the father's will and calling the spirit unites us to christ we're united to christ through the spirit's work the spirit empowers us to love and do the will of the father the spirit sanctifies and we live by the spirit the Spirit intercedes for us, as we see in this passage. He sustains us, we see in this passage, and comforts us, which is we see in this passage. The Holy Spirit spurs us to love God, not the world. The Spirit is also the down payment that guarantees that God's plan will come to fruition, that He who began a good work in you 
will perfect it until the day of the Lord. Moreover, Ephesians 1, verse 11 to 14, clicker. Did I, I almost have skipped that one. Ephesians 1, 11 to 14. In Christ, we too have been claimed as God's own possession, since we were predestined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. When you believed in Christ, you were marked with him the seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of God's own possession. So God not only enacts so God not only has a plan, but he enacts the plan, but he also guarantees it will be completed. And that's what salvation is, church. Salvation comes by God, Father, Son, and Spirit. So I ask you, who is God? Not rhetorical. Who's God? Father, Son, and Spirit. Thank you. Father, Son, and Spirit. Three in one Trinity. That's our God. That's, that's who enacts our salvation. That's who brings our salvation to fruition. Yes, Jesus is divine. But when we say God, we do not simply mean the one person of the Trinity. When we praise God for our salvation, we do not simply mean the one person of the Trinity. It is the Father, it is the Son, and it is the Spirit. This is our God, and this is His saving work. And what assurance there is, knowing that it is He who calls, He who justifies, and He who glorifies, brings to fruition. When it is God who does it all, we can all feel immensely secured. And lastly, those He justified, He glorifies. Here is where we see the why. Why does God justify us? Why does God have a plan? Why does God enact his plan? Why does God complete his plan? This is the why. Paul informs us that glorification is the purpose. It is the reason why God saves a people. So what is glorification? It means to be predestined to be conformed to the image of the Son. It is to be morally conformed. It is to be spiritually conformed. It is to be mentally conformed. It is to be physically conformed. This moment of glorification. I think the click is broken. But the picture of the many people in heaven. Um, the moment of glorification is when Christ stands before the Father as the firstborn over many brothers and sisters. This is what verse 29 says. Essentially, it means for Christ, Jesus Christ, our great King, the God-man, to stand before the Father, presenting His little Christs. That's us, the little Christ. Like we have said, we aren't like, we aren't like Adam and Eve. We aren't reverting to the garden. But no, instead, as new creatures, the Bible says, new creatures, new creations in Christ. And we're presented by Jesus through the Holy Spirit to the Father. So what is glorification? Glorification is the picture of this plan being fulfilled. 
And Romans 8 explains how he uses the world, i.e. suffering, hardship and all the rest of it, to accomplish this plan. So this is not just, this is further than the why, this is the how, how he brings it together. This is Romans 8, 28. And we know that all things work together for, go- for good, for those who love God, who are, according, who are called according to his purpose. So how does he does it? He does it by working all things, by working hardship, by working suffering, by working loss, by working grief. He works literally it all. And once we understand that God is working all things, all of these things, we can start to appreciate and be grateful for those things. So even if we view these things negatively, if we understand how God can use it, we can start to become grateful. So suffering then is not merely an unfortunate consequence of life, but it is something that if we add God to the mix, it truly becomes beautiful. It becomes purposeful and it becomes meaningful. As a result, we can have gratitude for these things. And I would love to finish today with an illustration of how we should view our suffering, hardship, challenges, and irritations. So if Pastor Taylor or Hamish, would have, if Pastor Hamish and wife can please come to the stage. She asked to be called that, by the way. And yes, she did. You said, can you please call me wife? Okay. Uh, this is for you. Um, can you please stand in front of the stage? Yeah. And maybe a little bit away from the stand. Just the right of the stand will be fit. Both of you, both of you, both of you. Yeah, that's perfect. Awesome. Is that going to count? No, this one. Okay. Um, so as you can see, we have two people here with see-through bottles. Just, just, yeah, take the cap off. Just take the caps off. That's fine. Uh, we have two people here with see-through bottles. One has water and the other is meant to be empty. Get it, go, 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 go. There's that one. <laughs> Legend. Okay, so one has water and the other one is empty as planned. Um, no, you, you're good. Don't worry about it. So neither of the, like, Charlie doesn't know what's happening right now, just by the way. So the water, is, the, the water is symbolic of what is inside us, okay? So the water is symbolic of what is inside us. It may refer to anger. It may refer to resentment. It may refer to pride, lust. <laughs> yes. Resentment, pride, lust, entitlement, impatience. Any sin that we commit, this is where it belongs. It's the water in the bottle. But it also 
contains our passive obedience. Passive obedience is the things that we don't do that we ought to do. So previously I was mentioning things that we do that is wrong. That is our active disobedience. This is passive, the things we ought to do that we don't. For example, read our Bibles, pray, praise, work on our humility, lack of trust in God, seeking to be independent on God, independent from God, and so on. <laughs> so, and this is, this is my personal opinion here, uh, but this is, a passive obedience is usually what our suffering and sadness and grief help with, it seems. So most of our passive obedience, God often, like, God draws us into reflection and prayer through our troubling times. God draws us into the aforementioned passive, the previously mentioned passive disciplines. But since I want to end on a light note today, we will use an example of active obedience, which is what we do do. So for the sake of illustration, let's say that Hamish is an angry person. We all know this is very true. Um, I've been trying to hide that for a while. Yeah, but that's what we got the water for. Hamish does not know that he's an angry person because of his anger, ang- because his anger is the water, and the water is see-through. So he doesn't know the anger's there, right? But if I cut Hamish off on the motorway, I'm so sorry. That's what I would have said if I cut him off on the motorway too, actually. But if I cut him off on the motorway, Hamish... I'm... Hamish erupts with anger and foul language. His anger and foul language just flew out of his bottle right there, symbolically. Symbolically. Um, symbolically. And later, possibly literally. <laughs> but now, in Charlie's case, if I cut her off on the motorway, there's no water in it. <laughs> yeah, just she's not overjoyed that I'm hitting her hand, but there's nothing to come out. Nothing's coming out of the bottle which means that nothing is in the bottle. (laughs) So, in Charlie's case, well, we see this is exactly what our external influences do in our life, right? Our external influences reveal what is inside us. We cannot know that the water is there without the external influence that causes the water to come out. So, it can be a partner. It could be your colleague at work. (laughs) It could be your financial situation. (laughs) It could be... No, I'm just making stuff up. I'm just... (laughs) I'm just going through the notes. I'm just... (laughs) Pretty sure you only had one example there. (laughs) (laughs) It reveals what is inside us, right? We have... but But we have a choice as Christians. We can either blame the external factors for our behavior, or we can take responsibility and be grateful for that thing or person and then have a posture of growth. So in Hamish's case, he could be mad at me. He could be mad at the... (laughs) He could be mad at the external influence, right? 
and somewhat justifiably so. But you still had the water in there in the first place, which is what is inside you. So even though I'm the, the guy who cut you off, I'm not the one who caused the foul language, the anger, the intense anger right now. That was already inside him. I just brought it out as the external influence. And I promise you, once we, sorry, I, and I promise you, once we start to view these external influences as things that help sanctify us, that help bring the things out of us, that help us grow, once we start viewing those things with gratitude, what was the point then? <laughs> yeah, once we can be grateful, once we start realizing those things is for our growth, it's for our sanctification. Me personally, I used to complain a heck of a lot. Complaining made me miserable. Nothing was ever good. Nothing was ever right. I hated waking up early. I hated working. I hated driving. I was constantly miserable because I couldn't stop complaining. But once, once I learned to thank God for those things, and I once, once I started to have a posture of growth and started being grateful that those things were helping me, I, I switched up complaining for gratitude. Not like I still complain, but I mean like <laughs> majoritively. I still have a lot of water myself, but I do. But um, yeah, I switched up complaining for gratitude majoritively. And that, that really did something. I've been filled with a lot of an abundance of joy because of this attitude shift. So I encourage you all today. Be grateful Christians. Learn to, know, <laughs> learn to know God. Learn to know God for who He reveals Himself to be. And when we face suffering, know that is a part, it is a part of our triune God's Father, Son, and Spirit's plan. And during that plan, the Spirit will sustain and comfort you in those times. So I thank you all for coming today. Have a lovely week. Thank <laughs> you.